Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, this episode comes to you from the past, because I'm recording it on Monday night, which is really early. But we're also talking time travel, as we discuss a couple stories from Stanbury, Missouri, and Drim, Scotland. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of season 2 of Small Town Secrets. And like I mentioned in the intro to the show, I am recording this really early. I'm recording it like Monday night, Tuesday morning, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the reason being is because I am helping out first shift this weekend, so I'm not working third for the rest of the week. Um, I guess we have to rerun some electricity for our printer which I hope isn't code for we have to move the printer because it's like 
12 foot, 14 foot long, 6 foot high, weighs I don't know how many hundreds of pounds. I do know it has a 400 pound roll of paper on the back of it. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we're not moving that and we're kind of working around that and rearranging the office and doing some little special projects for our work. So I, since I slept all day because I didn't know I was going to be working for a shift until later this evening, uh, I decided to just get the show done, get it out now, tonight, go home, go home, I'm already home, uh, then go take like a three, four hour nap and wake up and hit first shift and you know, deal with that for the week. So that's why we're recording this early. You're still probably not going to hear it till maybe Friday night, Saturday morning. So it'll still come out about the same time. But I just took this opportunity to go ahead and knock it out so I don't have to worry about like taking a nap Friday night and then waking up and then doing the show and then probably going back to sleep. This just seemed easier. And uh, this show came together really quickly. Like I, you know, I usually, usually, uh, reserve the whole week before the show to do research and get everything worked out for it. And I literally just sat down most of this evening and knocked everything out. Uh, research was really easy, had some good notes, some good sources. News stories came together really quickly, and I already had uh, listener stories ready to go. So it came together very fast. It came together very well, actually, in order to make this work. But enough of that. I uh, have one little small announcement. Uh, for the time being, the Dirty Knees Soap Company kind of ambassador program is done. It was like a beta. And uh, it's not going away, but they have taken it down. They're going to retool some things and come back. So if you do jump on there and you try to use the code or you try to use the click-through link, it's probably not going to work. But it will come back, and I will let you know when it's back up and running and if anything's changed or, you know, if you guys want to get back on that soap. But stay tuned for that. So I think that's about it for right now. Uh, of course, we have a promo from another Big Heads Media podcast before we get into the show proper. So we're going to listen to uh, Body Count, their promo. So check them out. And I'll be back after this promo and we'll get going with the show. While you may think that history is eh, vaguely interesting, the truth is it's fun and metal AF. Echoes of the past are still reverberating through our world today, and Body Count is here to show you how our shared history affects your life on the daily. Whether you know it or not. So, are you past the point of higher education? Feel like you didn't learn anything from your high school history teacher? Or just didn't give a flying crap about it? Are you tired of always missing out on the yellow history pie piece in Trivial Pursuit? Are you the horror of all your friends' game nights? Did you once proudly announce that Napoleon Bonaparte was a super short little nutsack? When in reality, he was an average-sized nutsack. Have you been thinking about living under a faulty dam? Or perhaps an active volcano? Well, we have good news. It's not too late for you or your homeowner's insurance. Come on over and listen to Body Count, the podcast that explores death and disaster through the ages with only one rule. Someone, or usually a lot of someone's, dies. dies. Because history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. A proud member of the MSE Podcast Network. And there we go. Uh, like I said, tonight is about time travel. A couple of really fun stories. I have been trying all season to get this episode together. 
Uh, I knew that I wanted to do Stanbury, Missouri. I knew I wanted to talk about uh, Michael Madman Markham. But the issue was trying to find another time travel story that also had something to do with a small town. You know, I thought maybe I could pull off the infamous John Teeter story. Titer story? Titter story? Uh, but it's not really tied to a small town. It's kind of hard to narrow that one down to where everything originated from. There's a great French time slip case that happened back in the 1800s uh, that involved the Palace of Versailles and a bunch of stuff. But it wasn't quite time travelly enough. It was almost more like a haunting. And uh, there were just way min too many uh, French names that I wanted to mispronounce, so I didn't do that one either. But finally, I stumbled upon uh, Victor Goddard and his time slip over Drim Scotland in the 30s, and the story had just enough meat on its bones to warrant a full segment on. So it took all season, I mean months, for me to find the stuff that I wanted because I really wanted to talk about Mike Markham, but I needed, you know, I needed that other town. Is this the format that of the show? But we got it. I'm here, and we're going to talk about both those towns tonight, Stanbury, Missouri, and Drem, Scotland. We're going to start with Stanbury, Missouri, and Mike, Madman Markham, and his uh, time machine, maybe, possibly. So without a further ado, let's get into the story of Mike Markham from Stanbury, Missouri. Stanbury is a little place with a population of around 1185, 1,185, according to the 2010 U.S. Census. It lies in Gentry County, Missouri. It's a quiet place. Not much happens there until Mike Madman Markham moved in. This story starts off with a fun electrical experiment and ends up in the realm of time travel. Mike started his adult life going to Rio Grande College for electrical training. This was in Rio Grande, Ohio. After two years of school, he left to follow a girl he liked to Albany, Missouri. He ended up staying in Missouri, moving to the small town of Stanbury. Markham had always had an interest in electronics and tinkered with them all the time. In December of 1994, Mike was tooling around on his porch, attempting to construct a Jacob's Ladder. And if you are unfamiliar with what a Jacob's Ladder is, I'm sure we've all seen them. It's that Frankenstein thing. It's that thing where it is two uh, metal poles or metal wires that kind of form a V-shape. And there's a spark of electricity that travels up the wires until it gets too, too far apart and then disappears and it starts again at the bottom. Once he got the spark of the ladder up and running, he decided to add a laser from an old CD player to his contraption in order to make a quote-unquote crazy light show. And I think he also did this to try to heat up the spark. The laser can kind of control the temperature if you know what you're doing. Uh, upon doing this, he noticed that there was a hazy distortion of heat waves rising from the top of the Jacob's Ladder. So they describe this akin to seeing when you see heat like rising off of asphalt, off of the road or out in the desert, and you just kind of see that distortion. At the top of this uh, haze, this distortion, was a small circular corona or vortex. Interested in what was transpiring, 
He took a sheet metal screw and tossed it into the eye of the vortex. The screw disappeared, only to reappear a second later beside the contraption and fall to the floor. He tried this a few more times, getting the same result. He decided to get a camcorder so he could record the phenomenon. However, the CD laser burned out and the strange vortex went away. So he never got a chance to uh, catch it on camera. Not one to back away from an experiment, he decided to go bigger. In January of 1995, he got a few friends together and a truck, and they drove out to the local power plant in nearby King City. There, sitting outside, were six old defunct transformers. Mike and his buddies helped themselves to these transformers in broad daylight. Mike spent the next week or so connecting some of the transformers up to the power in his own house in an attempt to make a larger version of the vortex he had discovered on his porch. When he flipped the switch though, things quickly went downhill. His device started drawing way too much power from the local grid, causing brownouts to a few blocks of the little town of Stanbury. And so they weren't blackouts, like he didn't kill the power, they were brownouts, so he just drained the power. So everything goes from like your house runs on 120 volts but he starts drawing all this power and um, he says that he had drained everyone else's power down to like 85 volts which isn't great because your 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 like your electro electricity is still flowing but not at the speed and not the power it's supposed to so it kind of you know that's when you get flickering lights and TVs going you know just doing weird things and it can destroy electric equipment so it's not like a great thing Shortly after trying his uh, machine a few times, the cops would come a-knockin'. They presented him with a warrant. They said this warrant was because someone from his residence had shot out some windows with a BB gun, which indeed had happened. It was one of his buddies had accidentally, so he says, you know, shot off a BB gun and it ricocheted or did something to hit someone's window. However, the missing Transformers were listed on the warrant, so I'm going to assume that they probably knew or had some suspicion that he had taken these Transformers, uh, but they didn't have anything super concrete to get into the house. And then the BB gun thing comes along and they can tack that onto the warrant and get in there and look around. It didn't take long at all for the police to notice the six giant Transformers sitting around Markham's property. He would receive 60 days in jail and end up losing his job. As soon as he got out, he wanted to start up his experiment again, only this time on the more legal side of things. Enter Art Bell and Coast to Coast AM. And if you're listening to this show, you probably know who Art Bell is and you probably know what Coast to Coast AM is. If you don't, Coast to Coast AM is a nightly radio show about the paranormal and conspiracies and all that great stuff. And Art Bell hosted it for a very long time. He's passed, and now it's hosted by George Norrie. But this happened back in 95, so it was still Art at the wheel. Uh, Art had received an interesting fax. In the fax was an article from the Kansas City Star about Markham, the theft, and time travel. Art proceeded in tracking Mike down and got him on the show for an interview. From this interview, he would garner some critics, but mostly support as well as donations, mostly in the form of equipment 
but a little bit of money, about 20 grand worth. Someone also offered up some free warehouse space. Most of my research came from uh, this episode of Coast to Coast and the follow-up episode that they did, uh, which we'll get into later, and a couple of great articles from Jason Offit about Markham. But I have linked all that in the show notes. They're on YouTube. You can go and just sit there and listen to uh, all the Markham stuff, all the episodes that they did with him. Armed with this equipment, Mike would construct a much larger 3 million volt version of the machine he built on his front porch. This machine used more sophisticated components, such as newer transformers and nitrogen-cooled lasers. The donated equipment, Markham figured, reached into the millions of dollars, which means without this outpouring of support, he would have never been able to pull this off on his own. Once the gigantic machine was built, he fired it up and got the same result. The vortex this time measured about four foot in diameter. He started testing it by uh, standing on a cherry picker and throwing guinea pigs through the vortex. The guinea pigs would all appear unharmed outside. They would mostly be found in the warehouse parking lot, either to the west or east of the warehouse, never north and south. He chalked this up to the Earth's magnetic field. And I actually have another idea on this. I can't remember if I came up with this or if I read this on some obscure website a long time ago, but so, um, this would always happen. So the Earth rotates kind of on easterly direction, so from like east to west. So I'm going to try to explain this because we're going to get some weird time travel stuff. So when he throws the guinea pig through, and he or he throws the wood screw or the sheet metal screw through, it appears you know, to the east of the thing and then drops on the floor, it's because it was transported forward into time and has appeared where, you know, the machine or the warehouse was going, is going to be. So you throw a guinea pig through, you know, it pops up 200 feet east of the warehouse that means that, you know, you could, you know, if you wanted to, if this if this idea is correct, you could calculate that. You could be like, okay, it was 216 feet from the warehouse going east. How long does it take for the earth to rotate for the warehouse to get to that position? Does that make any sense? Yell at your, yell at your phones right now if that makes any sense. Attract attention. Uh, become, become a distraction in traffic. And... Like, so sometimes they would go west, so I don't know if that was they were going back in time, if this idea holds. And this is, you know, like, this isn't this isn't Mike's idea. This is, he he said everything was just magnetic field to keep everything going. But, or was it just, we can't find the guinea pig because they ran west and now we, you know, it could be that too. Like, they're guinea pigs. They just got shot through time. They, you know, I don't know. I'd run away if I was a guinea pig that was shot through time. And maybe they just, by the time they found them, they had meandered west of the warehouse. But we'll get into why, because Mike kind of presumes that his machine can't go back in time. It can only go forward. And that's kind of where I'm at, too. So I think, like, hey, everything appears east because the Earth has not caught up to where the thing has been transported to. Uh, so now that I'm done with that weird diatribe, let's get back to the story. Then Mike decided it was time. He had to jump in to see what would happen. One day in 1998, 
with about 25 to 30 of his donators around for the big test, he jumped from his cherry picker into the corona and disappeared. Mike was hit with what he described as a flashbang effect. He woke up disoriented in the middle of a field. After regaining some of his composure and doing a little exploring, he found he was in Fairfield, Ohio, which is a town or a township uh, above Cincinnati. And it was the year 2000. Mike entered the vortex and exited 800 miles east and two years into the future. Or so he claimed. Mike found solace in a Cincinnati homeless shelter since he left his keys and wallet back in 1998 out of fear of the magnetic fields. He didn't know what the metal would do and he figured the magnetic field would just wipe all his cards so he just left it there. He had no ID on him. His brain had also suffered some amnesia from the experiment. He forgot his name for a little while and the names of the people who had donated equipment including the person that lent him the warehouse. But soon after entering the homeless shelter, he would recall his social security number and his name, which would allow him to eventually get a new ID. Mike took a few temp jobs and eventually got a bus back to Missouri. When he got there, the warehouse was empty. All of his work, notes, and equipment was gone, and he never recovered any of it. In 2015, 20 years after his first appearance on Coast to Coast, he would be back on to tell Art and his listeners of what had happened. Uh, Mike now, I think he resides in Hawaii. He started a GoFundMe in 2016 to once again start up his experiments, which I don't believe uh, got a lot of traction. Uh, I mean, I found a link to it, but it was back in 2016. So if you click on it now, it just says the campaign has ended. It doesn't give you really any information on it. Uh, as well as a website which was quickly taken down, and I found links to that too, and it, it's still down. Like, he never, the domain name is still dead to go there, it just won't open. Um, so, that's kind of a weird crux in the story that he's now all of a sudden having all this trouble getting information out there and getting back on track. Before it was like, oh, we'll give you everything. And now it's like, Nothing. Almost as if though his research ended up in someone else's hands and we don't know who or what or where. All those great W's of what's going on. I think that maybe, you know, someone's got it and they just don't want him to get a foothold into it anymore. Uh, he does have a Facebook page. I'm not going to link to it in the, so the show notes because it's a Facebook page. You know, I'm not going to try to start anything there. But you can find it with a Google search and uh, you know he's I mean there's no uh, it's I might send him a frame request and see what happens there's some pictures on there he does talk about the machine a little bit but mostly it's pictures of fireworks and him living in Hawaii and you know stuff like that so there is a way to get him he's still around I think he's still interested in this but I think in the recent years he has found he's hit kind of a brick wall like I said it would take millions of dollars for him to attempt this experiment again so who knows you know will uh, Mike Madman Markham try his time travel experiment again only time can tell eh eh you like that eh but yeah he did talk about um 
there's a lot of great mumbo jumbo and science talking. Uh, the Coast to Coast shows, they get into the voltage and the amps and all that great stuff. But he does talk about how the machine, as far as he knows, can only send you into the future. And the only way that you could get back into the past would be if the machine stayed on and you were somehow able to get back into the corona. And that's the only way you could get back into the past, but you can only get back to where you started from. You can never get past that point. Which is kind of the... Uh, there's a great time travel movie called Primer. Uh, it used to be on Netflix. It's been on Netflix for a while. I don't know if it's still on there anymore. But if you if it is, and you get a chance, watch it. You have to watch it twice, and then find a nice blog post to explain it all. But it works on that kind of crux of time travel, too, that, like, we can only go back to when the machine was turned on. We can't go past that. So like if I invented a time machine today, um, I could only come back to today. Like I go to the future and come back to the day. I couldn't go to like Halloween last week because that's before the time machine was started. So that's his theory and it kind of works. He's like time travel doesn't work like it does in the movies. So it doesn't look like he had, if, if this happened, he doesn't look like he had a lot of control over where he went. He knew that he would go into the future. You know, he's not sure. I mean, I haven't heard anything about how, like, you know, how did he go so many hundreds of miles into the future, but the guinea pigs only went, like, a couple hundred feet? Is it something to do with the weight of the object? Every, it seems to be the bigger it is, the farther it goes, right? The wood screw, the wood screw, sheet metal screw went, like, a couple feet, dropped. The guinea pigs went a couple hundred feet, uh, did whatever guinea pigs do. And then he went a couple hundred, you know, he went a hundreds of miles. But it's a fun thing to think about. Make what you will of the story. But he does, I mean, he if if it's made up, he covers all of his bases. Like, you know, he, you know, he does have some amnesia. You know, it is kind of sad that he didn't really document anything. Or if he did, it, it went missing. You can't remember these people's names, but some of this did happen. I mean, it might have all happened, but we know that he did get arrested for stealing those Transformers. In fact, when you listen to the Coast to Coast, the first episode, the arresting officer calls up one of the on one of the lines and talks with everyone for a couple of minutes, and there was a newspaper story about it. So, regardless of if you believe of his time travel claims or his experiments or any of that. He's a real guy. It did happen, and he still kind of sticks by his story today. But that is uh, Mike Markham's story as it stands right now. He appears to be chilling in Hawaii, just trying to, you know, keep going on. And I've I've wanted to do that story for such a long time, and it's just great. It would make such a fun, like, stupid time travel movie. I, I don't know. I hope someone gets on that. It would be nice also to, like, go back and try to find, you know, go to Cincinnati, see if you can track down this homeless shelter, or see, see how much of the story can be corroborated with what he's, he's said. But that might be something that I could look into, just to have a fun little side project. But we'll see. And that is the story of Mike Markham from Stanbury, Missouri. So we're going to have... A boom here, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about a different 
kind of time travel in Drim, Scotland. So as I mentioned, this is a different sort of time travel story. This is more of a time slip, as they call it, which is uh, an unexplained phenomena where people will suddenly find themselves for a short period of time, no pun intended, in a different time. You know, you hear examples a lot of people that are driving somewhere that they're unfamiliar with, and, you know, they stop at this great little kind of retro cafe or restaurant, and, every you know, it's done to the nines, everyone's dressed in old clothing, and the music is old, you know, and they go and they have a great meal, and they leave, and they continue on their trip, their vacation, and then on their way back, they're like, oh, let's stop at that that place that we stopped at on the way up, and they get back, and it's not there, you know, it's stuff like that, where people just seem to kind of cross some sort of line, some sort of mystical, mysterious line, and end up uh, in the future, or in the past, and then come back to this time, there's no time machine involved in a time slip, and that is what we're going to talk about now. We're going to talk about Drem Scotland and uh, what Victor Goddard saw. And I think this is a good one because I think it's one of the more credible time slips. It has some things that you can go back and easily verify about it. Even though I guess everything's after the fact about it. But let's get into it and, you know, see what you think. Drem is a small village in Scotland located in East Lothian. Drim is not known for much, other than a small air force base during World War I and World War II. It would be this base that Victor Goddard would fly over in 1935 and see something that would boggle his mind. The base was first known as the West Fenton Aerodome when it was completed in 1917. When the base was first opened, it was a temporary home to the American 41st Aero Squadron and I love it because this was back in like the 1970s when we just figured out flight. So everything's arrow this and arrow that. You know, the arrow squadron. Uh, this was uh, commanded by Lieutenant Warren Woodward. There was also a repair company on the site. In 1918, the 401st moved out and the name was changed to the Galan Aerodome, which uh, was kind of a nickname of the place, of the Air Force Base. After World War I, it was demobilized and vacated. It would see a little bit of use between 33 and 39. Like, it, it kind of fell into disrepair, but, you know, it was still had a runway. It was still viable, so every once in a while, a squadron would stop there on occasion. In 1939, the grass airstrip would be resurfaced, and the Air Force Base would be renamed RAF DREM, so Royal Air Force Base. Uh, during World War II, it would be home to uh, defense fighter units for the surrounding area. The airfield would be officially decommissioned in 1946 after that. So, enter Robert Victor Goddard. He was born February 21st, 1987, and from 1910 to 1918, he served in the British Royal Navy. Then, from 1918 all the way up until 1951, he served in the Royal Air Force. During his time in the Air Force, Victor Goddard was stationed at many different places, such as New Zealand, shortly before the attack on Pearl Harbor, 
and even in India in 1943. He served proudly on the Western Front and the Battle of Somme in World War I, as well as Guadalcanal, the Battle of France, and the Solomon Islands in World War II, just to name a few. Goddard was a highly respected and decorated officer in both world wars. In 1935, he would have an experience over the little airfield that would be nothing like he'd ever seen. In 1935, he was making a flight from Andover, England to Edinburgh, Scotland. The flight up to Edinburgh was uneventful. The flight plan took him over the airfield in Drim, Scotland. Looking down, Goddard saw the airfield as it was at the time. A pretty much dilapidated airfield with a grass runway. The buildings had started to be overran by the local plant life, and even a cow or two had decided to take up residence. It served as nothing more than a familiar landmark letting Goddard know he was on the right track. A few days later, Victor started his flight back to Andover. He traveled the same flight path as before, which means, once again, he would fly over the dilapidated airfield. Upon approaching Drim, Goddard was suddenly swallowed up in a tremendous thunderstorm. The storm came from nowhere. Thunder and lightning was mixed with a torrential downpour of rain. This was unexpected, but not out of the realm of possibility. Except, however, for the strange yellow clouds. Goddard decided to pull up and try to get above the storm. He did this, and shortly after, the clouds broke and the rain stopped. It was all clear, as if it was never there in the first place. Victor looked down to see the familiar base, but it was not the same. Its grass airstrip had been replaced with a paved one. The buildings were no longer barren and overgrown, but buzzing with life. Men in blue coveralls ran around four yellow planes on the runway. There was also a type of aircraft that he didn't recognize at all. This was all very strange to Goddard. How did this dead airfield become revitalized in just a few days? And what were these planes that he had never seen? As he cleared the Drim airfield, the strange yellow storm once again surrounded his plane. And once again, he had to fight the storm, but he was able to make it back safely to Andover. Victor Goddard recalled this story in 1975 in a book he wrote entitled Flight Towards Reality. You can get that book on Amazon for $216. It's long out of print. It's believed what Goddard experienced was a time slip into the future. As I stated earlier, the airfield at Drim was reopened in 1939 as RAF Drim. It would once again become a bustle of activity. One of its new purposes was to house the number 13 training school. And throughout most of the 1930s, training planes were just unpainted aluminum, so they were that shiny silver color. There wasn't anything on them. But in 1939, Britain had started painting their training planes a bright yellow. It was also interesting to note in 1939 that the Royal Air Force mechanics uniforms had been changed from tan to blue. RAF Drim would also be the home to a new Miles M14 aircraft, which was first flown on March 20th, 1937. Could this have been the mystery plane Goddard saw on his flight back? Everything that Goddard saw that night matches up perfectly with the state of the airfield in 1939. The revitalization, the yellow planes, the blue suits, as well as the unidentified aircraft. 
Victor Goddard would pass away on January 21st, 1987, at age 89, always sticking by his story. And I guess you can go back and argue, like I said, everything is after the fact. He didn't tell this story until 1975. Had he told this story in, like, 1936, and then everything came to fruition, then it would be an amazing recollection, because you couldn't doubt him. You know, everything would have been... He would have looked like... He probably would have looked like a crazy person in the 30s for saying that, but in rolls 1939, or hell, even 1937 when this aircraft came out, if this was the aircraft that he saw, and everything would have been corroborated, you know. But really, what does he have, like, what does he have to gain about making the story up and putting it into a book that, A, he didn't have to write in the first place? You know, after he retired from the Air Force, I think he went on to teach and do, you know, he had... A well-to-do life. He wasn't, from what I could tell, really hurting for money or anything, so, or publicity. Once again, this probably didn't get him the best publicity, but like, he just seems like a man, you know, he was in the army, he wasn't in the army, he was in the Air Force, in the Navy, and he was a well-respected member, so I, I think that leads a lot of credence to his story, and the fact that even if it's after the fact, everything came up uh, true. So take it with what you will. Like I said, you can get the book. It's expensive. I would one of these days, maybe one of these days, I'll like stumble upon it in a used bookstore that doesn't know what they have, and I can get it for like a dollar or a garage sale. I think it would be a fun, fun little read to have. But that is Victor Goddard and his strange time slip. One of the more credible ones I think out there, because like I said, a lot of them are just like, oh, we had the place and it was awesome, and then we went back and it wasn't there. But this one has facts that can be easily verified uh, with it and that holds I think a lot of weight but those have been our stories for this week we're going to take a little musical break uh, this is a new track called Anxiety uh, you'll, you'll find out why and uh, we'll be back after that with the news and the local headlines
chocolate fudge covered Oreos. Uh, we are here, and I have eaten some Oreos. And this is the local headlines. Our first one is from the Courier Journal, the Louisville Courier Journal. So that's Louisville, Kentucky. And this article is by Billy Coben. Headline reads, Unidentified object that hit Kentucky man's home is not from a plane, FAA says. The Federal Aviation Administration says that a mysterious object that damaged the Kentucky man's mobile home earlier in October did not come from an airplane. The Norfolk Southern Railway says its nearby rail lines have nothing to do with the canister-type object that hit a home in Bergen roughly 75 miles southeast of Louisville. What about the National Guard or Fort Campbell military base? Could the object have possibly come from their units? Nope. All that news, or lack of it, leaves Tommy Woosley still wondering about the origin of the object that damaged a wall and part of his bathroom. Seems to me that they should be able to trace the barcode on this thing to see where it came from, Woosley told the Courier Journal in a message Wednesday. Woosley discovered the object lying there in the wall of his home on October 13th after returning from a weekend out of town. The object was a type of canister about 2 inches round and 10 inches long and very heavy for its size, Woosley previously said. Authorities initially believed the canister may have fallen from an airplane, but an FAA spokeswoman told the Courier-Journal an investigation has determined that the object is not an aviation part. FAA spokeswoman Kathleen Bergen said the agency reached out to Norfolk Southern to ask if it could have come from a rail line that's near the home. In a statement, a Norfolk Southern spokesman said the railway company confirmed that the damage to Woosley's home was not caused by a part of a Norfolk Southern engine or any Norfolk Southern device. Norfolk Southern was not involved. Bergen said the FAA also checked the National Guard and Fort Campbell, which is roughly 220 miles southeast of Bergen, and they indicated the object isn't theirs. We expect to return the object to the Mercer County Sheriff's Office for further investigation, and we will close our inquiry into this matter, Bergen said. A Mercer County Sheriff's deputy who has handled the case did not immediately return a request for comment. Woosley, however, said he planned on talking later Wednesday with a man who claims to know where the object came from. Until then, the mystery goes on. Uh, the story may be updated. And I, I did see an article, and I don't know if it was this one or not, and I couldn't find it, that uh, it might be space junk, probably, from like a satellite or something. Or maybe... It's from the future, or the past, and it just appeared here. And our next story is from Newsweek by Hannah Osborne, and this is a great headline. One million cannibal ants trapped in Soviet nuclear bunker have escaped. A colony of up to one million cannibal ants trapped in a nuclear bunker for years have escaped scientists in Poland have said. The ants, which have had no food source other than their dead nestmates, were first discovered in 2013, were found to be solely made up of worker ants, meaning they could not reproduce. How their numbers grew so large was a mystery. In a study published in the Journal of Hemonoptera Research, 
Researchers have now studied the colony to understand how it functioned and installed a escape route to see if the members would leave their home given the option. The team, led by Wolczyk Trzaskowski from the Museum and Institute of Zoology in the Polish Academy of Sciences, were carrying out the survey of bats living in an abandoned Soviet nuclear bunker when they came across the wood ants living in an ammunition bunker where nuclear weapons were once kept. The ants had had no access to the outside world and appeared to have come from a nest above that was positioned over a ventilation pipe. When the ants fell down the pipe, they were entombed in the bunker. However, after returning to the site two years later, scientists found the colony was not only still there, but had grown in numbers. This was despite there being no obvious food source, no heat, and no light. A population estimate suggested that there were hundreds of thousands, if not one million ants, living in the bunker. Ants are known to have set up colonies in unusual places. Nests have previously been found in the chassis of a car, inside a wooden box in complete darkness that could only be accessed by a tiny skip at the base. However, in all other cases, the ants were able to come and go. The masses of Formica Polytechno workers were trapped in the bunker and had no choice, the team wrote. They were merely surviving and continuing their social task on the conditions set by the extreme environment. In 2016, scientists found the colony was still there and the team set out to analyze its behavior. They installed a boardwalk that led to another ventilation pipe the ants could use to escape the bunker. A year later, they returned to find the colony had almost completely vanished. The team expected the, inspected the corpses that had been left behind and found bite marks and holes, mostly in the abdomen. This, they said, was evidence that the ants were eating dece deceased nestmates in order to survive. After being provided an escape route, the ants appeared to have made their way back to the original nest. On falling down the ventilation pipe, they were able to make their way back, so the bunker was deserted. The survival and growth of the bunker colony through the years without producing own offspring was possible owing to the continuous supply of new workers from the upper nest and accumulation of nestmate corpses. The team concluded, the corpses served as an inexhaustible source of food which substantially allowed survival of the ants trapped down in the otherwise extremely unfavorable conditions. Researchers say the case of the cannibal colony shows the extreme wood ants will go in order to maintain self-organization even under conditions going far beyond the limits of the survival of the species. They continued, more generally, the present case adds a dimension to the great adaptive ability of ants to marginal habitats and suboptimal conditions, as a key to understanding their unquestionable eco-evolutionary success. So I don't know if I read that right, so were they positing that the reason there were ants is because like, yeah, obviously they were eating the dead ants, but, like, was it also just because ants kept falling into the pipe and couldn't get out? Um, I just thought it was a really kind of fun, interesting story and had a great headline. Uh, maybe the ants were nuclear. Eh? Nuclear ants? But we have, of course, one more story. We're going over to uh, News Channel 6 here at NewsChannel6.com, and this is by uh, Camille Connor, and this is, headline is, Residents describe hearing mysterious siren sounds, Wichita... Falls. Wichita Falls, Texas. An ominous blaring siren has been startling people across Wichita Falls. To some, it sounded almost like something out of an apocalyptic movie. 
for Azuri Acosta, hearing the sirens around 6.45 Monday morning was all too real. I was prepping for my meditation that I do every morning and the siren just went off, she said. The siren is right near her house by Lucy Park. I looked out the window and I see it spinning, so I was freaking out. She had never heard or seen anything like it before, so she called the police. They didn't seem to know what was going on. So she texted friends. Apparently no one heard it. It was just me, so everyone was making fun of me, she said laughingly. But she had not imagined it. People were telling me that they heard it this morning also across town. Footage of the sirens this Monday was taken by Jessica Picardo on the southwest part of town, not far from Lake Wichita and Memorial Stadium. It was also early morning around 7, almost the same time when Acosta heard the sounds the week before. Picardo remembers, I was making some coffee and I just heard a really weird noise. My dog kind of tilted her head and walked over to the door. I just kind of looked out. It was far away at some points and then it sounded like it was closer. She was, not only, she was not the only one trying to find out where it came from. Traffic engineering superintendent Louis Wilkinson set out his crew to inspect more than 50 sirens around town. He said they found nothing unusual. Now the department plans to reach out to the manufacturers of the sirens uh, they use for more answers. It does not help that the mysterious sirens add to an already eerie time of year. Picardo said, you know, I watch a lot of horror movies and the first thing I was thinking with it being Halloween time was martial law or the zombie apocalypse or something like that. Um, and I think like early in the article it mentions how she said it was it was uh, spinning. So I think she was talking about the noise like coming in, going out, and coming in and going out. You know, kind of like that. Uh, there is a video from uh, uh, Channel 6 that has the alarm on it. I'm going to attempt to get it here on the mic so you guys can listen to it and uh but if you really want to check it out go to the website it is it is a eerie alarm that just kind of comes out of nowhere it doesn't sound like a sky sound or anything it just sounds like literally like an alarm going off but it is it's not like the kind of sound you want to wake up to at seven in the morning but uh check it out So there you go. That have been that has been this week's local headlines. Let's come back with some listener stories and finish out this episode of the show. And we have two listener stories tonight like we normally do. Uh, the first one is a leftover from last week from Seb, who sent me all those great old newspaper articles from up in Marin County in California. So we had one leftover, and I just wanted to do it real quick. And uh, this one is titled, Ghost Disturbed County Prisoners. This is from the uh, Marin Journal, Volume 48, Number 1, January 3rd of 1907. Black Spirit of Convict Love rides in the jail on bicycle in dark hours of the night. A ghost walked into the county jail last Wednesday night, and according to the eight occupants of the place, he performed a variety of stunts to their horror and amazement. It was the ghost of convict love. 
who committed suicide in the steel tank there several weeks ago while awaiting trial for having stabbed a fellow convict to death at the San Quentin prison. Love was well known to the eight occupants of the jail and they all claim they had recognized him plainly as he rode in on a bicycle about the gaslit corridor of the jail with his head and broken neck swaying from side to side. More than seeing them, these prisoners vow that he first aroused them by clutching their sides and necks with his cold, clammy hands. In relating his experience, Ernest Neverini said, I was sleeping when someone grabbed me by the neck and side. I thought that it was a joke and told them to let me alone. They did not stop and I lit the gas. I did not see anyone and was beginning to wonder when a black hand grabbed the gas jet and turned it out. I was frightened and jumped up and relit it. Then I heard screams coming from the cell at the other end of the corridor. The men were having the same trouble. I was terror stricken, and as I stood at my cell door, I saw Love rush across the corridor to where he had hung himself. He, he got up after his partner, Larson, and we all could hear him scream. This lasted about five minutes, and then Love came riding out on a bicycle down the corridor. He had no coat on, and his head and neck were swaying from side to side. He rode straight on for the big room, big room door and went right through. I rushed down to call help, and the door, as usual, was double bolted. I was speechless and could not whisper. I don't believe in ghosts, but from now on, you got to show me. I saw love plainly as did the other seven men in here. Borson, who was waiting trial for killing a fellow convict at San Quentin, tells pretty much the same story. Only he says that for the past week, he has heard love in his cell turning the water off and on and talking to himself. The old sailor who has come from Sausalito, I can't read that, and whose term expired Thursday morning rushed away without wa waiting for breakfast. Gus Val Insignia is terror-stricken. He says that it was Love's ghost and made no mistake. Each prisoner was terrorized and pleaded to be turned loose. There is no shame about their fears being real. It is believed to be due to some hypnotic suggestions possibly coming from Larson who had repeatedly said that Love's ghost was about. This undoubtedly worked on the men's minds until they saw things. And I apologize if I read that kind of wonky. It's it's an old article. It's photocopied onto this, and it can be kind of hard to read sometimes. But our last one is also kind of in the Bay Area, and it is from uh, Jonathan Janowski. Uh, Janowski? Sorry, Janowski. And this is uh, San Jose, which isn't a small town, but I'm going to allow it. And San, o San Bruno, which is a little bit smaller. But he sent me... This fun little article about some haunted uh, Chuck E. Cheeses in the Bay Area. And this is from Alt-1035. Is there a name? I don't really see uh, a writer for this article, but it is titled The Bay Area's Two Haunted Chuck E. Cheeses. It's not all fun and games at the Chuck E. Cheeses off Tolly Road in San Jose. 
This particular Chuck E. Cheese's location used to be home to a toy store called Magic Village that featured large toy soldiers in the windows, and they have a picture of it here. Uh, these windows, where you'll, these windows are where you'll now see the Chuck E. Cheese mouse when you drive by. Now, as the story goes, when the location was still a toy store, a little girl fell from a third-story window to her death. Though there's no legit confirmation that this ever happened, there have been claims from Chuck E. Cheese's goers that a face of a little girl has been seen in the parking lot and on the third floor. There's also a tale of a little boy who fell down the stairs while looking for his mother. Supposedly, cries for his mom can still be heard in a particular stairwell of the building. While the San Jose location is the more commonly known haunted Chuck E. Cheese, location, it has also been reported that the one in San Bruno, in the San Bruno Town Center, has some ghosts in it as well. Customers have said there are cold spots in the shower room area, and they feel that someone is watching them. If you're thinking the similarities between these stories and the popular video game Five Nights at Freddy's, we get that. However, both of these tales predate the existence of the game, and that's just a great fun story. I will say that the San Jose Chuck E. Cheese is kind of creepy. It's got these big long windows and there's just a big rat with a hat on in the middle of it. But I'll put that in the show notes so you guys can read that article and take a look at the picture. And that has been this week's listener stories. Thank you all for sending in listener stories. And that is going to kind of bring an end to this episode. And once again, I would like to thank everyone for listening and supporting the show. Uh, numbers have been great. Engagement has been fun. Everything is is just great. And I love it. But uh, let's get the stuff out of the way. And we'll head on so we can come back and do another one of these episodes. If you have a small town secret to share. If you've got a local legend, a true crime story, a personal experience. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cryptid report, a UFO sighting, 
any of that great fun stuff, then you can get it to me in a myriad of ways. Uh, the easiest and easiest for me and way to organize it is to send it uh, via the website. If you go to stscast.com, down at the bottom of the main page, there is an email submission form. You can also get me on social media. Uh, I'm on Twitter, which is where I'm most active, and Facebook. Both of those are at stscast, and Instagram, which is at stscast.gram. So you can get there and shoot me some stories if you want. You can also go over to Reddit. There's a subreddit there that is r slash stslistenerstories, and you can leave your your uh, story on there if you would like. Uh, all Links to all of these and links to everything else is, of course, on that website, stscast.com. You can go there and find all the sources that I use for this episode and every episode, as well as some pictures. Uh, you can find merch on there if you want to grab a T-shirt or a coffee mug or something like that. You can find other ways to support the show as well. And like I said, all the links, the social media links are down at the bottom of the page, the Reddit link, all that stuff is on there. But uh, before we get out of here, I just want to mention that, uh, like I said, normally I don't do this, but I've tied it in. I can't, I don't think I can back out of it now. Uh, if I wanted to change it, I don't think I could. Uh, next week is episode eight, eight, nine, and 10, three more episodes in this season. And we're going to, I'm going to be doing a massive three-part season finale on Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and the Mothman, and everything surrounding it. Um, I wasn't going to do that this early in the show, but some stuff has happened this year. Some new stories about it have come out, and things like that. I'll get more into it when we get into it. But I found some great books and some great resources that I you know, didn't have at the beginning of the season, and decided to go ahead and make this season's finale Point Pleasant, West Virginia. So that's what we got coming up on the horizon. That's what you have to look forward to. Remember that every town has a secret. What is yours?